Hello, welcome to the East London Radio Private Lives podcast. This is Paul Robinson. On today's pod, we meet a member of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band, prolific writer and performer Nils Lofgren, and the writer and guitarist who wrote for Michael Jackson, but is best known as a member of the rock band Toto. He is Steve Beccaro. But first to Nils Lofgren, the master singer, songwriter and guitarist. He's worked with Ringo Starr and Neil Young as a member of his band Crazy Horse and is still playing with Bruce Springsteen. Nils has enjoyed a hugely successful solo career and has a superb new solo blues rock album out called Weathered, including material co-written with Lou Reed. I asked Nils about his early days and his first musical instrument, not the guitar, not the piano, but a classical accordion. Yeah, you know, I, on the south side of Chicago, Paul, where I, I was born, lived for eight years. Seemed like every kid on the block played accordion. I don't know why. And um, my mom's grandparents were from Sicily, uh, and my dad was Swedish, so, you know, the Swedish-Italian culture has a lot of accordion. Anyway, I asked for lessons when I was five years old, and, uh, you know, I started studying it, and after you get through the waltzes and the polkas, you move into classical music, my teachers took me, and you know, almost 10 years went by. God bless my parents for paying for the lessons. And uh, when I fell in love with rock and roll, really through the Beatles and Stones and what we call the British Invasion, uh, having that 10 years of classical studies was a huge help and backdrop to music in general. So you did study for 10 years, I think. But then what caused you then to switch to the guitar and to rock music? Well, you know, at a, as a young, I don't know, maybe I was 12 or 13, I played till I, I played an inner contest all the way till I was 14, I think, on the accordion. But uh, the Beatles came out and blew our minds. I fell in love with um, just the extra chords, the extra melody, the extra counterpart and harmony just touched a nerve. And um, it was like a possession, man. It just kind of you know, became a sacred weapon in my life, music. And it was really through the Beatles and Stones and, of course, the British Invasion that I discovered um, all music, you know, Stax Volt, Motown, Little Richard, Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, the whole lot uh, was inspired through the, the British bands initially. And, of course, the American counterpart to that was the uh, Buffalo Springfield, the Birds, on and on. But... Um, my brother Tommy started playing guitar as a hobby, and um, of course, thanks to rock and roll and, and just being so uh, possessed by it and, and in love with it, he started showing me a few chords. Tommy showed me my first few chords, and we just learned for fun. It was just a hobby. Nobody in the mid-60s in America thought you could you know, do what the Beatles did or the Stones or Jimi Hendrix or any of that. You just did it for fun. So I, that's how I initially got started. I used to play at my ninth grade variety show. I did a Beatles medley on my accordion. And uh, I was just starting to learn chords, thanks to my brother Tommy. And of course, that's how I got started. I'd love to hear that, a Beatles medley <laughs> on your accordion. That's something. Now, you've chosen some music and um, you've chosen a Beatles song. You've chosen Help. So why this particular Beatles track? Well, you know, I, I, I loved everything by the Beatles. We used to Man, it, it was, I don't know, just the good old days, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. But we had this uh, place near our high school. I went to Walter Johnson High School. He was a famous baseball player. 
uh, earlier part of last century. But there was a, a little strip mall near the high school called Wildwood Plaza, and they had a little record store. And I still remember we'd all get in line from the cash register out the door down the the road a bit to get the next Beatles single. We, we didn't need to hear it. We, we just knew it would deliver and we'd be inspired. And, um, you know, way back at that point, I just, uh, you know, everything Beatles and all the great music there would, would just, uh, you know, touch and touch a chord and a nerve. And, uh, I, I just, it's, it's never left me, you know, music became kind of a sacred weapon, if you will. And, uh, to me, the Beatles in particular, just to me, have the greatest body of recorded music. Uh, but there's so much great music that came out of that time and, and still is. But uh, that's, you know, really the beginning of it all. And I uh, started playing in teen clubs, just doing the cover songs and learning the Beatles songs. And it really wasn't until uh, a, couple, a few years later, all of a sudden, um, one night I saw Jimi Hendrix play live after a Who concert with Hermits Hermits and the Blues Magoos. And at that point... Um, I kind of walked out of those concerts possessed with the idea, especially seeing Jimi Hendrix live, that um, I had to try to be a professional rock musician, which had never occurred to me. And that was when I was seven, you know, I guess I was 16 when that happened. And by the time I was 17, I left school, I went up to Greenwich Village and started walking in on record companies asking for work. And it's all kind of gone on from there. And I should say, Niels, we've had a couple of little noises in the background, which is Dale, your dog. So we ought to give Dale a quick credit, I think. Yeah, I mean, we've got my um, beautiful 13-year-old senior citizen, uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. We call him Dale for short. He's a Queensland healer, red, ridgeless, ridgeback mix, about 65 pound. And he's a lovely dog, but he gets a little spoiled with treats, so... You know, you give him a few, and then he keeps talking to you. So we're, I'm petting him, and if that's not enough, I'll, I'll ask him to leave the room if he bothers us too much. But that's Dale. No, it's great. You've given us a fantastic visual picture of what Dale is like, and I can just imagine you there. I love, the, I love Nils, <laughs> Nils Lofgren, the rocker, giving treats to his dog Dale on the interview. Oh. I, I just love that. It's fantastic. Let's move on from the British invasion. And a critical moment for you, really, was when you met Neil Young. Yeah, back... Uh, when I decided to be a professional musician, I put my band Grin together, and uh, we'd done some audition. I started, I started Dale, please, buddy. I started writing original songs. I think one of the first songs I ever wrote was Like Rain, which is still one of my favorites, and it's on the new Live Weathered album. But um, I got into the habit of sneaking backstage, asking for advice, because uh, I didn't know what I was doing, you know, in the music business. I just knew I wanted to have a go at it. And uh, there was a great club in Washington, D.C., the cellar door. And it was pretty easy to sneak up the stairs into the dressing room. They didn't have security a lot of times. Walked in on Muddy Waters. He let me watch him play cards and talk to him a bit. And um, it was one of these tiny places, like 200 seats with a wraparound balcony. So very tiny and intimate. You were always on top of the singer. Anyway, I walked in on Neil. Long story short, I told him my band was going to L.A. to look for a record deal. He asked me if we had any songs. And I said, yeah, I write songs for us. And he said, well, sing me some. And I sang him a song. He said, that's good. Sing me another. Anyway, four or five songs later, he said, I, I like that a lot. Why don't you hang out with us for a few days? 
He got me a cheeseburger and a Coke, got me a table because I was underage at 17. I watched four amazing Neil Young Crazy Horse shows over two nights. And um, he stayed in touch with me via phone when he left. And uh, sure enough, a few weeks later, when Grin wound up in L.A., I looked Neil up and true to his word, he took us under his wing. And um, very long story short, David Briggs, his producer, uh, was going to work with us, Neil. And, uh, you know, we made our way slowly but surely with uh, those two guys as great mentors for us in L.A. Love the cheeseburger story. I mean, you were only 19 when you played piano and guitar on the After the Gold Rush album. Actually, I was 18. 18. Were you really but, um, young? Really young? Yeah, I was. Uh, you know, and, and the interesting thing, since I, I was living with David Briggs and Grin had a rental house and we were, you know, the house band at the Topanga Canyon Corral, uh, Neil would come in and jam with us, sit in with us. So these guys became like big brothers and friends. So uh, a year later, as Grin was making our way with David Briggs, um, demos, looking for record deals, uh, Neil and David asked me to join a, a group to make the After the Gold Rush album. I was just 18, and so surprisingly, they said guitar and singing and some piano. And I was, guys, I don't play piano professionally. I just, you know, I just picked around at it from the accordion. And they both, you know, surprised the hell out of me by saying that, uh, hey, we like, you know, we think you can handle the simple parts. We're looking for something real simple and sparse, and we think you can handle it. And, you know, at that point, what are you going to do? Keep talking to me, give, give him a list of names. <laughs> I just, I said, thanks. Uh, I'm honored to participate. I was nervous, but I practiced constantly mm. and uh, had a chance to make that beautiful record. And fortunately, I was able to play some parts that uh, worked. And we had a great vibe going with Greg Reeves on bass and Ralphie Malita on drums. And, uh, you know, Neil up top with the great singing, guitar playing. And, uh, of course, me in the middle with Ralphie, very simple piano parts. So we're talking about After the Gold Rush and Neil Young. What was he like to work with? Well, at the time, you know, when I met him, I was just a kid. And like I said, <laughs> understand, I met Neil when I was 17. And uh, within weeks, I was living in L.A. So I saw David Briggs. Day I, I actually moved in with David Briggs in Topanga. So I was living with David, and I would see Neil very regularly. So these guys were kind of like big brothers to me and friends. So uh, I, I always saw the kind of good-natured, humorous side of Neil. I mean, he was very, um, you know, him and David were both hard chargers in the sense there was extreme honesty and matter-of-factness, which was very healthy for us to see as young musicians to just remind us of the seriousness of what we'd taken on. After one jam at the Topanga Canyon Corral, uh, Neil loved playing with the band. The next day I was up at his house with David. I was so happy. It's like, yeah, I had fun playing with you. And, you know, young musician, just starting out, feeling like having a good day about something good that happened. And then they both said, look, Nils, uh, we got to talk to you about something. And they got serious. And said, you uh, great drummer, you're great. You've got to get a better bass player. You've got to replace your bass player. And, you know, we're a trio. We're like brothers in arms. And all of a sudden they have like my two greatest mentors tell me that we've got to like get rid of, you know, a third of our band. It was really like a shock. It was like, wow, welcome to show business. I mean, you wanted to be a professional musician. How are you going to argue with Neil Young and David Briggs? And anyway, 
we got a great friend and bass player that was back in Maryland, Bob Gordon, to to replace our original bass player George Daly, and um, you know that that made an improvement that we wouldn't have thought of on our own. You know, so again, part of mentoring is to take the 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 good with the and it wasn't even bad, just good with the truth, and uh, we had a lot of that from David and Neil early on, and it served our band well. Mm, an early lesson in the realities of the music business. Yeah, I mean, I look, I remember uh, when I when I was a runaway uh, to Greenwich Village, uh, and um, I used to sneak in, sometimes a big brother in the holding company, Janis Joplin's band, who I knew um, just from kind of meeting him at shows, would sneak me in to the scene, a big nightclub in... Um, in uh, New York City and uh, late night jams. Uh, and one night after seeing um, uh, Buddy Miles Express, their, um, their you know first show, Terry Reed was there. It was just a great night. And late at night, Jimi Hendrix came in and yeah, everyone was smoking, it was a cloud of smoke. And there was a jam session late at night. And uh, I just sat and watched, I was fascinated. And all of a sudden, somebody put down a guitar and left and nobody picked it up. And I'm sitting there going, wow, you know, no one's playing the guitar. And like, I wonder if I could actually go and pick up a guitar and jam with these strangers, you know, all older guys. And I thought to myself, nah, you can't do that. And, you know, they don't know you and, you know, nobody here knows you. And then I thought to myself, man, you've quit high school. You have brought all this shame and worry on your community and family. You're in Greenwich Village living in the street. You're, you're, you know, you're taking a subway to record stations in the day asking for work and you have no qualifications and you're sitting here uh, in a nightclub and you're wondering whether or not you should go and play. I mean, why the hell did you even decide to be a, try to be a professional musician if you're not going to take chances? I mean, look what you've already done to your life. So with that, I went up and picked up the guitar and started playing. Nobody noticed. I know the guitar had a broken string. But all of a sudden, Jimi Hendrix gets up in the back of the room, walks through the whole club right up and stands in front of me. And like I'm like, oh, my God, Jimmy's going to want to play guitar. Should I uh, tell him it's a right-handed guitar? And like, don't be an idiot. I'm thinking to myself, Jimi Hendrix knows that. Should I tell him there's a broken string? I'm thinking all this, right? He's standing right in front of me. It's only like a six-inch stage, so we're eye-to-eye because I'm short and he was tall. And... Uh, He's looking at the bass player right next to me and says, hey, man, let me play some bass. So now he wants to play bass, and I'm sitting on stage playing guitar, and he's standing right in front of me, so I'm going to get to jam with Jimi Hendrix. And the bass player says, no. He says, no. Jimmy goes, come on, man, let me play some bass. And the guy shakes his head and says, not now, Jimmy, I'm grooving. So he turns down Jimi Hendrix, and <laughs> I'm sitting right there watching this, and I feel like, should I take my guitar and hit this guy upside the head? Say, no, you're too too scared and shy and young to do that. And Jimmy just smirks at the guy, disappointed, turns around and glides off into the cloud of smoke back to his seat. So there I was, missing a chance to play with Jimmy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, crazy things like that happened a lot. But um, fast forward to my 19th birthday, uh, uh, my band Grin, who now was, you know, had a record deal. David Briggs was producing our first album. I think it, you know, we were, um, you know, playing opening acts for everybody. We got a, a chance to open for the Jimi Hendrix Experience three nights, three different cities in California, and one of the nights in Ventura was on my 19th birthday. 
So on my birthday, sitting there getting, you know, getting ready to open for Jimmy, my guitar hero, and watch him play. And David Briggs eggs me on and said, hey, it's your birthday. Why don't you go treat yourself and say hi to Jimmy? And again, same kind of thing. Oh, I can't do that. And he said, why? Why not? It's your birthday. You're the opening act. And uh, so thanks to David, I went and knocked on Jimi Hendrix's Winnebago trailer. And Jimmy answers the door. And he's sitting there smiling and looking down at me. And I had a chance to shake his hand say, hey, I'm your opening act. You're the reason I'm trying to be a professional rock musician. Thanks for all the great music. Before I overstayed my welcome, I said, have a great show. I'm honored to be here. Thanks, Jimmy. I, I kind of started closing the door gently and walked away. Uh, before I made the mistake of inviting myself in for a guitar lesson or something crazy. So a lot of cool stuff that I, and, you know, I owe so much to those great mentors, Neil and David Briggs, who to this day still, David's with us in spirit. We lost him in the 90s. And, of course, recently, uh, last couple of years, I got to hook back up with Crazy Horse, play some concerts, and make a, a great new album called Colorado that we made together that came out last October. You're listening to podcast radio this is private lives i'm paul robinson and Niels lofgren is my guest and wow what a story 19 years old knocking on the trailer and supporting Jimi hendrix on stage yeah you know the thing about jimmy um he was such a groundbreaking still to me the the greatest of all i always saw jimmy and jeff Beck were kind of off in their own stratosphere but you know the early guitar players the greats like jangle reinhardt and charlie christian les paul Wes Montgomery, Kenny Burrell, you know, they, they set the table for all this, but I felt Little Wing was an example of Jimmy literally in like three minutes taking all the two and three note phrases of jazz, rock, fusion, all of it classical, and, and almost created an entirely new style uh, in that brief song uh, with this kind of, I call it waterfall guitar, just this very ethereal kind of not quite just straight out lead playing, but all these themes with two and three notes, very classically bass with the, you know, gutter soul of the guitar that he had. And it just was a stunning to me, like invitation to a whole new world for all us guitar players on that little wing. Amazing, amazing. Wow, what, what days they were. Let's fast forward. This new album was recorded on the road. You're listening to Podcast Radio. Denny Mizell, a fabulous singer, who um, sang on uh, many Bruce Springsteen and E Street band tours with me and got to be great friends with my wife, Amy, was kind enough to do my last studio record, Blue with Lou, and find time to come on this tour. So, uh, and past the great harmony singing, you'll, you'll hear her in the bridges singing. I, I asked her to scat, you know, like, Cindy, please just, if you hear something, do it. You know, just scat and don't even talk about it. If you get an idea, pass the harmonies, please just sing whatever you feel. And you'll hear her occasionally, especially after the second bridge, just start improving and playing around what I'm doing, just totally naturally and, and beautiful, which was like a whole other instrument for this great band. Let's see, it was, uh, Amy and I would go see the Seeger Sessions band, Bruce's great band, and Cindy was spectacular. He had a lot of great singers. And then um, we wound up touring together uh, on the, uh, the Wrecking Ball tour, uh, the, the Magic Tour, uh, Working on a Dream. So we, we spent countless uh, years really on the road with Bruce and E Street singing together. We had a lot of great singers, but um, it was fun. You know, we, uh, Bruce is famous for 
changing the set list every night, doing, uh, you know, requests that we've never played before. And it wasn't a rare thing. We were all, you know, getting ready to go to the um, to a sound check. Bruce would give me a text or a call about something new he wanted to look at. And we realized we were leaving in an hour. Next thing you know, there'd be Cindy and Curtis and Michelle and Everett would come up to my room. The girl Amy would help the girls with makeup. They'd, they'd all have carry-out sandwiches trying to get dressed, and we'd be sitting there on YouTube trying to figure out harmonies to some song Bruce just threw at us before we you know, rushed down to, to take the van to the sound check. And it was just really a, a beautiful experience working with Cindy, and I was so honored she found time to come and do this whole tour with us, and, and it shows on the record, I think. You talked about improvisation. That's always been a characteristic of yours, hasn't it, really, Nils? Yeah, you know, playing classical music, uh, the last couple years, of course, everything's the written note. And uh, I would study for a year two classical pieces and enter a contest. It was a lot of pressure for like a 12, 13-year-old. And I always remember, you know, like every note has to be identical and the feeling has to be inside the written note. You have no leeway. So when I fell in love with the blues guitar, I mean, I must have seen B.B. King dozen times through the years in the cellar door. I saw him many times at club. I told you where I met Neil, but I fell in love with improvisation and and the idea of rock and roll and the blues. If you were down in it and really looking for something magical, you could have rough edges. You could make a mistake. And if, if it was in that search for something magical, it seemed to work. There was none of that going on in classical music. So, um, I fell in love with improv really out of the gate. And to this day, most of what I do on stage, I mean, I can't read guitar music. I can read a chord chart, you know, G, E minor, C, D. But if you put a line in front of me, say, I want you to play this line, I can't read it. I'd say, hey, give me a tape. I'll learn it. But it was the freedom of improv that got me away. And it was pe- particularly as a guitar player, and you'll hear it in this new Weathered album. I mean, you just want to improvise what you hear and play. And that was the instructions, as I mentioned to Cindy, about sing whatever you feel. And the band, too. I never coached them. They, they knew what to do. And every night would be very different. Some jams would turn into very long affairs. Other nights we'd wrap it up shortly. And uh, I gave every, I mean, sometimes something I, I hadn't done in, you know, 15, 16 years. Uh, near the end of the night, I, actually, you'll hear it on this record, uh, on the last track, it ends with a jam we call uh, Jam Papa Was a Rolling Stone into I Came to Dance. It's just one really 16-minute piece. But I remember just saying, you know, hey, Kevin Andy, the bass player and drummer, entertain us. And I'd walk off stage, go over to my brother's keyboard rig, have a cup, sip of coffee with him, and just let Andy entertain us. They, had, they didn't know what they were going to do. I just said, guys, play for us. And I'd walk over play for six minutes and, and that's the joy of improv with players that can handle it when i was doing a bit of research on you just so making sure i was up to date i discovered a poster which was you supporting Southside johnny and the asbury dukes at somewhere called the john carroll gym does that have any recollections for you <laughs> yeah yeah that look uh again uh, one of the blessings of starting in the 60s where there was no internet there were no cell phones the only game in town was to play learn how to play in front of people. So my band Grin and then my solo bands, you know, we'd open for anybody under the sun, played thousands of shows. The place I learned the most is in front of an audience. And, uh, you know, I, I don't remember even what town it would is, but I have a vague memory of opening for Southside, who's a great, you know, great Jersey mainstay and still is with that 
kind of soulful horn section that uh, that Jersey soul he still does so well you know I, I was blessed to open for hundreds of bands co-bills sometimes you have three and four bands on a bill but uh, Southside's still doing it and I remember having fun that night yeah, I remember him coming over to London. I was lucky enough to have lunch with him. It was one of uh, those rare moments you think, wow, this is just special. That part of the country <clears throat> had a, a, you know, especially with Bruce, Southside, Stevie Van Zant, a lot of great music coming out of Jersey still is. But um, hey, Bruce and I go back to 1970. We were, she was in Steel Mill and my band Grin. We both had an audition night for Bill Graham out at the Fillmore West. Um, it was where, you know, like 20 bands will play 20 minutes each looking for an opening act job from Bill. And that's where I first kind of discovered Bruce and started following him from that night. Back in the late 70s, I was making the Nils album. And, and me and Bob Ezrin, the great producer Bob Ezrin, who I love working with, we felt like we had a lot of good songs, No Mercy, things like that. Uh, but we had a lot of great music with what we both agreed as Bob pointed out, were subpar lyrics, and I agreed with him. And rather than me keep rewriting the words, he said, what about a co-write? And I said, well, I don't do that much. It depends on who it is, but um, he said, what about Lou Reed? And I said, well, you know, I laughed. said, how are you going to get Lou Reed? And I didn't realize Bob had produced the Berlin album. So literally the next day, we met Lou at a studio across town in New York City, and we talked about it for 20 minutes, and, and Lou was surprisingly open to the idea. Uh, I found out later he was still looking for material for the Bells album. So anyway, he said, Nils, come to my, my apartment next week and let's talk this through. So the next week we spent a long night together. We watched a NFL football game, which I got a kick out of the fact that Lou was a big, uh, you know, American football fan. Yeah. And we drank and talked into the night. And I already had so much music that Lou, even though we were open to getting the loft with the upright piano and a couple guitars and going to work six, seven hours a day, just putting ideas together. He said, why don't you start by sending me what you have and we'll go from there and I'll see if I get a hit on it or get familiar with it. And I said, great, I'll, I'll put a cassette together. Of course, that was a sophisticated tape at the time was this cassette player. But, uh, and you know, I had all these songs written with words I didn't like, titles, sometimes, you know, incomplete words, Lottie dying. And I said, Lou, you want me to just hum or la-di-da the melodies and keep all these lyrics I don't like out? He said, no, give me what you got. I want everything you have as is, please. So I sent him a cassette. A few weeks went by, didn't hear anything. I got back on with my work with Bob because we had to do our best regardless if we'd be lucky enough to get Lou's help or not. And Lou woke me up at 4.30 one morning and uh, announced that he'd been up for three days and nights with no sleep. He loved the cassette. He loved the music, he said. And he just woken me up because he completed 12 finished sets of lyrics, completely done, that he thought were great. <laughs> and uh, if, I could, uh, if I didn't mind, he'd like to dictate them to me on the spot. So we both had a laugh. I got a pen and pencil, put on a pot of coffee, and spent three hours taking dictation from Lou, which at the end, of course, we were both thrilled. He said, hey, there's three songs I want to use on the bells. Yeah. If you could run that by Bob Ezrin, I'd like to use a few of these. And uh, we were going to we were saying goodbye after hours on the phone and sun was coming up now and both we were both happy. And I said, so you woke me up at 430 in the morning to tell me I just written 12 songs with the great Lou Reed. And he laughed and said, yeah, I guess I did. Anyway, uh, I used a few. He used a few on the Bells album. I put out a couple since then with his blessing. And then tragically, when Lou passed, there was um, five or six of them that never saw the light of day. I knew I had to get on my next studio record, which 
year and a half ago was Blue with Lou. This is one of the tracks on the, you know, the, one of the newer tracks no one had heard that we did on the Weathered album. And I just think, you know, it's kind of this ominous warning that I think is appropriate in this day and age, too. You know, don't let your guard down. Look what happened to me. And it's just a great, aggressive rocker I was honored to write with the great Lou Reed. Great new stuff, Nils. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to... It's, I'm so blessed that this happened. You know, uh, the idea came up. Matt Bittman, uh, sound man, road manager, does a great job with me for many years, said, you want to, you know, bring a portable unit along and record any of this? And I said, no. We were, at, we, all, we were all here with the crew rehearsing at our home here in Arizona. I said, no, I don't want to record... I want every night to be different. We're going to jam our faces off and have fun. And it's just a snapshot of me with a band for the first time in a long time, town to town for the three or 400 people packed into these clubs each night. And just before we left, my wife Amy came and said, look, Nils, I know you just want to kind of kick out the jams and enjoy this and not put out a record, but please record it anyway for me. And so we got the stuff, thanks, thanks to Amy. We recorded all the nights. And really, I did had no intent to make a live record until months after the tour. Matt sent me some rough mixes of a number of cities, and I had to admit, listening, it was reckless and rough. And you know, I was kind of taking chances and you know playing a little you know loose and free. But there was a great vibe to it. And after listening enough, I realized, man, you know, I really should share this because this has something different going on than the other bands I've been with. And of course, then the pandemic hit and I felt even better about it because, you know, me and Amy go out to hear live music regularly and I go out to sing it regularly and all that went away. So uh, it felt even more important to get get the live record done with this great band and share it. Yeah, I think post-COVID-19, great music is absolutely essential now and even more required than before. So thank you for sharing it. Let's go to 1984. And of course, very important thing happened that year. You joined Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Yeah, you know, that was, uh, <clears throat> again, I saw Bruce in 1970 with Steel Mill, and I started going to see his shows. Um, I'd see him in New York City at the Bottom Line, out in L.A. at the Roxy, a nightclub I opened with the Tonight Tonight Band and Neil Young. Um, and I was always a giant fan. <clears throat> uh, long, long story short, uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, visiting with Bruce, uh, I think it was 83, and uh, I just was up in Jersey for a few days, just having a visit. He invited me over. We went and jammed with some bands and hung out. And um, we were, he was a bachelor, so was I. We were watching TV, and MTV came on. And uh, they were announcing that he might have a new player and Steve might leave the band. And I said, what the hell is that about? And he said, that's, that's, that's not happening. That's just, you know, gossip mill. But I said at the time, I said, well, geez, man, if you ever needed a guitar player, I'd, I'd want an audition. And he, he said, really? And I said, yeah. And, you know, but it was just kind of a casual aside, dismissed the gossip on TV. And, you know, we listened to Born in USA album all weekend. He just finished mixing it. And I love the record. I, I, of course, knew Dancing in the Dark would be a big hit and uh, turned out to be, you know, a lot bigger record than even <laughs> either one of us were hoping or thought. But anyway, months later... Uh, the year went by. We're now we're into early 1984, and uh, he called me and said, "Hey, why don't you come back up? We'll get together and play a little bit. Maybe I'll get the the band together. We'll do a little jamming." And Bruce is very low key, and I didn't grill him about it. But when he said, "Get the band together," that was that made me think something was going on. And rather than grill him about it, I just you know said, "Yeah, I'll, I'll get up on the weekend 
and sure enough, you know, the band was there and um, Bruce picked me up at a little airport. I was pre-production for my, for my album Flip and Lance Quinn, the producer, was a pilot and he was brave enough. I mean, he was able to talk me into flying a two-seater plane from Philly to this remote landing field in New Jersey. Bruce picked me up and along the way I said, you know, what's up? And he said, well, Stevie's going to do a solo project and he, he, he can't wait on it. He's got a, you know, he's got so much good music. He's going to, you know, leave the band and do some solo work for a while. And we, we you know, we got an opening night in, a, in four weeks. Born USA tour starting. <laughs> and Stephen Van Zandt's going. Player. Stevie Van Zandt went solo. Yeah, yeah. This was four weeks before opening night that Bruce, I mean, I'm sure they figured it out before that, but this is now me heading to Bruce's house for a couple of days to jam with the band. And, you know, Bruce was like, look, let's just, uh, I said, yeah, I'm just starting a record of my own. And, you know, I'd love to play with you guys. We played for a couple of days. And, you know, Bruce, before we started playing, said, look, give me give me a week or so. I'm going to play with you. We'll see how it feels. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. And I said, thanks, man. Let's let's have fun. And if it's if it's right, let me know. As soon as you know, please let me know, because, of course, I've got other stuff and people that I have commitments to. And um, after the second day of playing, I went out front, getting ready to pack my bags and head home to Maryland. And Bruce walked out and said, hey, I've talked to everybody. It feels good to us. You want to join the band? And I was like, join the band like right now? I said, yep. You mean like rush home, get my get my bags and come up and start rehearsing for the tour? He said, yep, like that. I, I said, man, what an honor. And um you know, gave him a hug, got home. I was up, I was back up there 24 hours later, and we jumped into a mammoth rehearsal for this uh, beautiful Born USA tour, and uh, going on 36 plus years now, and honored to be in that great band. Amazing story. I mean, the thing about a Bruce Springsteen gig is it's such a great experience because it's a long experience. I mean, Bruce plays for three hours. I mean, as a musician, what's it like playing for such a long time? Yeah, we usually make it to three and a half or more. I mean, I think uh, in the last 10 years, our longest show was four hours and seven minutes somewhere. Uh, and that was without the breaks. We used to take breaks on the Born USA tour. There are no more breaks. We just play, you know, three and a half, four hours straight through. And it's quite extraordinary, but it does allow you to get down in the music and really get lost. It's kind of this trance place where at some point you're just dripping sweat. You're actually huffing and puffing. Uh, you know, from just running around and singing and playing. And it's a very cathartic healing adventure, even though, of course, you've got a lot going on musically and it really keeps you on your toes. Changing songs all, all night long. We never follow the set list. We usually always play one or two songs we never play in our lives. And it's an extraordinary, challenging, cathartic, healing adventure. Uh, thanks, 90% of it is... Uh, to the audience. You know, we've had great moments in rehearsals, great moments in recording studios, but man, nothing, nothing like what happens in front of the crowds. And uh, that's that's the beauty of being a true performer. I mean, I've long, I have this fabulous wife, Amy, who's from West Orange, New Jersey, and my dogs, and my son Dylan's down the road. Everyone's okay. I love my home. I love my family. I don't like leaving home anymore, but Actually, when I'm out there on the road and I noticed this on the weather tour with this live record, every night took on a much more important kind of uh, gratitude uh, for the ability to walk out in front of a crowd. Because, you know, we do it. We get dog sitters. 
getting to get a babysitter when Dylan was four or five. I mean, parking, how do you get there? It can be a pain in the ass going out to a show, but the reward from the music is so powerful. And to get to have all these people showing up to hear you play, I, ha I have more gratitude and appreciation for it. And I think I take the event more seriously and treasure it even more than I ever have, which is a blessing, of course, because leaving home is no fun in and of itself anymore. The audience does so much, and especially with the East Street Band and Bruce out front, he always brings his A-game. So every morning you wake up, doesn't matter if you're tired, whatever, you're excited. Because, like, I got a show tonight. I know we got this singer with, you know, 400 great songs who's going to bring his A-game. What do I need to do today to get ready? Yeah, I think that's fantastic. As a member of the audience, as I have been many times, I think we're incredibly grateful for that. And that passion and that love of playing, I think, comes through in spades. And, and wow, what a great experience the Springsteen concert is. I want to talk to you about your onstage activity because you're known for your theatrics, particularly playing the guitar while doing flips on a trampoline. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, now, now, uh, now it's 69 with two metal hips for 12 years. And um, both shoulders are pretty tore up. I have to say the trampoline, the mini tramps in the closet at the moment. I actually think it's on the wall at the Hard Rock Cafe in Acapulco. Because <laughs> <laughs> you were a gymnast as a kid, weren't you? You were but, actually uh, a good gymnast as a kid. Yeah, you know, I fell in love with gymnastics uh, in junior high school. We had a good gymnastics team. And, uh, and I, I, it was all new to me, but I really took to it and loved it and continued it um, for a few years. When I was on the road with Grin, briefly, because I'm very animated on stage, but briefly I was shy. I sat there, my eyes closed, focusing on singing and playing. And we were opening, in particular, it was Jay Giles. They had this roaring band. Peter Wolf to this day sits in with us. He was on our last tour sitting in with us. And such a great performer and singer and great, you know, spirit on stage. And man, they were just tearing the place up. You know, we'd go out and people would boo us, say, get off the stage, we want to hear Jay Giles. And I was thinking to myself, what, why am I so inhibited? I mean, I, I love music. Why am I not jumping and dancing around? What can I do this visual? <clears throat> so I came up with this wild idea. I went to my old gymnastic coach down at the YMCA in Washington, D.C. I said, Vern, I got a crazy idea. I want to be able to jump off a mini tramp and do a backflip while I'm playing my guitar. Can you help me out? Because, you know, once you're airborne, gravity takes over. And if, if you come down and land on your neck, you could kill yourself. Mm. So being a professional gymnastic coach, he was actually an Olympic coach for the women's team, a few Olympics. He put me in this old funky YMCA, put me in the ceiling belts. This is big, big belts come down, you know, pulleys from the ceiling attached to your waist on a revolving thing. So if you start falling, he can grapple you and pull you up in the air and keep you from hurting yourself. So we talked about the stunt because usually you throw your upper body kind of violently up in the air with both arms. And when you're holding a guitar, the entire upper body is now removed from the, the stunt. So we talked about it. He gave me some tips how to approach it differently physically. And he started helping me learn how to do it with the guitar. First, we did it without the guitar, make sure I could do it. And then he took me out of the ceiling belts and he hand spotted me, meaning he just followed me, take off, put his hand under my back. If I wasn't going to make it, he'd throw me around. So I at least, you know, land on my hands and knees on a heavy mat and not my neck. And then finally, I did it on my own with him spotting and I was ready to do it. I still remember it was a show in, um, I think, Tampa, Florida. 
We opened for Jay Giles, about 3,000 drunk college kids screaming, throwing bottles at us. Get off the stage. Where's Jay Giles? This was our thing, man. And we, you know, the promoter was like, hey, you play 30 minutes and not a second over. You play a minute over, you'll never work in South Florida again. And we're like, dude, relax, man. You know, I got to watch. We're okay. We'll play 30 minutes. So we do our set. People are yelling at us calling for Jay Giles, booing us, throwing bottles literally at us. And I run and do the backflip and with the guitar on and we walk off stage. We go down the stairway into the bowels of our little dressing room and we're sitting there. Yeah, you know, that was uh, that was okay. That was kind of crazy getting booed and having bottles thrown at us. The promoter runs in the room. He's frantic. He's like, you got to go back out and do an encore. Right now, right now. And I said, what the hell are you talking about, man? You said we'd never work again if we played. He said, no, 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 they're going crazy. They, they want an encore. I said, what are you talking about? They were booing us. I almost got hit by a bottle. I said, no, but that backflip drove them out of their minds. I've got 3,000 college kids ripping the place apart <laughs> for you to go back out because of that damn flip you did. So we go out. People are wildly cheering and clapping. <laughs> we play another grid song and leave to an audience that's very appreciative. And I thought to myself, man, welcome to show business. Welcome to show business. And uh, man, that flip stayed in the show <laughs> for, you know, years and years. I think it was uh, the flip tour, really, in, in the end of 85 after the Born USA tour in England was the last time I did it every night. Had a good long run. It was a great bit. But uh, that's how that all came about. It served you well. I mean, obviously, we'll look forward to seeing you on tour, hopefully in the UK next year, without the uh, backflip, without the trampoline. And, of course, uh, the new album is called Weather, double CD, 16 songs. Before we go, and it's been a complete pleasure, Nils, thank you. We're going to play Sam Cooke. So why have you chosen this track? Uh, first of all, thanks to you for playing my music all these years in Britain, the UK, uh, I so love coming to play there. It truly is a home away from home, and I will be back. All the fans there that have showed up through all these decades, hats off to you. I'm so grateful. Uh, the last, you know, 15 years, my wife Amy's come as the merch girl. I'm sure a lot of you have met her. She sells the T-shirts, and I come out after every show and sign autographs till nobody's left. And it's a very uh, treasured experience. I want to thank everybody there in the U.K., and I think, you know, despite all this madness and all these, you know, mentally ill, uh, power hungry men that, you know, billions of dollars isn't enough. They want more at the expense of life and the planet itself that we've got to sort out. And it's really become a problem. There's that thing that I think most people innately want to get back to, which is just having a good time being with good people, all like minded that, of course, want to treat each other equally and with respect and dignity but party safely and have a ball with this extraordinary gift of life. Nils Lofgren, thank you very much. Nils Lofgren and the new album Weathered, recorded between E Street Band and Crazy Horse Stints. It's out now. Next, we're delighted to welcome another legend from American rock, and that is Steve Picaro from Toto, whose albums and singles you know well, including Hold the Line, Africa and Rosanna. Steve grew up as one of three brothers who were all into music. I put it to him, it must have been pretty noisy at home when he was growing up. It was very noisy. Yeah, luckily we had a dad. Uh, you know, our, our father was a musician as well. And um, very early on, just as we were getting into high school and uh, me, just as I was getting into junior high school, we moved 
And uh, the first thing my dad did when we moved is he converted the garage into a real soundproof studio, you know, a double wall construction so we could make as much noise as we wanted without worrying about the neighbors. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was fantastic. You know, as far as brothers and being in the band and believe me, whether it was at home or being in a band together, you know, brother issues arose for sure. You know, um, Jeff and I in particular used to bump heads like crazy. Jeff is such a pure, natural musician. Um, you know, he pretty much hated anything to do with sequencers and computers and drum machines and click tracks or anything like that, you know, which was what I was all about. We bumped heads quite often. You bumped heads often. How did you resolve those differences? Uh, I left the band. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty drastic. No, yes, no. It, it was always kind of a negotiate. You know, it was always a uh, negotiation. And and Total Four, as a matter of fact, like I, I fondly look back at it as, you know, a time when the chemistry was kind of just right. You know, just just uh, uh, the stars were definitely aligned, you know, um, inside the group and outside the group as far as management and record company and agents and all that outside stuff goes. It just all aligned for us and and um at the same time that the band was very aligned as far as what our sound was and what the balance was between synths and uh uh, you know just keeping it just pure playing and um you know uh i look back fondly at all that you know um and then things kind of seemed to get out of balance and all of a sudden keyboard players became very unpopular in bands you know and we had two you know, let alone, let alone most bands, you wouldn't find one keyboard player in those days. Um, and, you know, the pressure from the record company to produce hits, it just it makes you start second guessing yourself. And, uh, um, you know, I all of a sudden felt like they, they wanted to take away all those kind of synth extravaganzas that were, as far as I was concerned, they were my reason for being in the band. Um, and they wanted to get rid of all that kind of stuff. So I just felt it was time to move on. It was very amicable, very friendly. There was no ugly scene or anything like that. But you left after six albums, and I think you wrote for, what, every album or all but one of those albums? All but one. All but one. You know, that's one of my things is I, I love writing, and I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to write a lot more, but I was being kind of the, you know, being, um, being the synth geek in the band, I kind of was always, struggling to uh to learn that stuff and to you know get better at it and be able to use it all in a very you know in a musical way all right so you live in la now steve i guess that's a a great part of the world to live you know it has its uh advantages and disadvantages you know the, the the traffic and the crowds and all that are can be a bit much but um i'm fortunate enough to have a uh quite a nice studio in my backyard so my commute is usually me with my coffee and in my jammies walking out into the backyard. So That's very rock and roll, isn't it? Your jammies, cup of coffee, and there you are writing masterpieces in your backyard. I love it. I love it. And, of course, you've got that beautiful, beautiful California sunshine. Yes, we do. I mean, I, I happen to love your weather. I, I love it when it rains. I love it when it's overcast. It, um, my creativity is... Uh, uh, um, is is real uh it's it's um really shines when it's raining out so um 
Well, you're yeah, very I welcome kind of... to come to the UK and, and show your creativity at any time, Steve. You'd be very welcome indeed. Uh, I've, I've never heard a musician say they're inspired by the bad weather, but that's, uh, that's good to hear. Oh, absolutely. So let's talk about your writing. I mean, you write the music. I mean, what is it? Do you sit down and think, I've got to write a song? Or are you continually thinking about ideas? Or do you just suddenly get inspired and then, you know, you put the dots down and there you are, you've got a great song? All of the above. Okay. Um, usually, usually it just starts with a, a, a little motif. I'll just be fooling around, either on, usually on the piano, a lot of times on, uh, in front of the, com- the, the computer, and I'll just kind of get a little groove going. Uh, for me, it all starts with the chord changes, you know, um, the chord changes and the groove and just the, the atmosphere has always been huge to me is that my songs, especially my records, you know, have an atmosphere to them. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I was doing, you know, I did a lot of film work for a long time while I was out of the band. And, and quite often you say, where does it come from? Sometimes I'd be working on a cue on a piece of music that had you know, and I'd be searching for a sound and I would find a sound and all of a sudden I'd start playing something that had nothing to do with uh, the music I was supposed to be writing. It just, you know, the sound inspired me. And all of a sudden there I am for two days working on <laughs> working on this little piece of music, you know, that has nothing to do with the show. Um, but just, you know, it just seems the more I sit down at a piano or sit, sit down in front of the stuff... Uh, something happens something happens something magical happens let's talk a bit about michael jackson because you worked um and wrote for the thriller album one of the big you know rock pop albums of all time yes human nature is one of yours i think it is amazing it is. song beautiful tell us about human nature that, that's such a beautiful song you talked about emotion and having heart in your song if any song does that one does oh thanks thanks that means a lot to me uh you know it was written uh, you know, yeah, we were just finishing up our fourth album, and um, I went and saw my daughter, and she had a very rough day at school, and uh, was asking me why, you know, and how this happened, and it was just typical kid stuff, And uh, but I just kind of, you know, I was trying to explain to her that this boy who hit her probably liked her, <laughs> you know, and she just was looking at me, you know, like, what, you know, that she just said, no idea why I would say something like that. And I just was thinking about the, uh, I was the, the phrase human nature entered my mind and trying to explain that to a kid, you know? Um, yeah. And so I just went into the studio. We were mixing Africa and I went out into the room where the piano was, the studio where no one was. And uh, it pretty much all came out at once. Yeah. The great John Bettis rewrote the verse lyrics right. and uh, just elevated the song to a whole nother level, you know, having, his brilliant lyrics on the verses. Yeah, I mean, it is a combination of the lyrics and the music. I mean, they're just, you know, completely one plus one is five. You know, it's, it's amazing. Did, did, I was going to <laughs> ask, did your daughter... And no. they, kept all my, they kept all my chorus lyrics. They too. kept them all. Well, that's good. That's, that's good to hear. What about your daughter, though? Did yeah. she buy the, uh, the reason you gave? It was all about human nature. Did she, did she get that? Did she understand it? Well, now she does at 41 years old. <laughs> okay, okay. She was a bit younger at the time the song came out. Um, you also did the Girl Is Mine for Michael Jackson. Well, you did the you did the synthesizer, produced the synthesizer, I think, for the Girl Is Mine. I did some of the synths on it. Yeah, mm. uh, together with David Foster. Okay. So, how do you work with someone together? I mean, when you're doing, you know, both working on the synth, how, how does that work as a team? Well, that was how that was most of my session work. To be honest with you, when I was first coming up, is that I would. Uh, I, I kind of saw that when I was getting ready to graduate from high school. I saw my brother's careers taking off and. 
you know, to look at just the other, uh, you know, the keyboard players out there, it was daunting. You know what I mean? What if I was just going to be a pure keyboard player and just, you know, this, the guy, the guy on the session, um, you know, the competition was just so overwhelming. So I, back, this is, you know, you got to remember, this is like the mid seventies and, and a little bit later where I kind of saw that, that the guys who could really play, the guys who were getting hired, that they didn't really know anything about synthesizers. They were all kind of just poking around, uh, hoping to get lucky. So I, you know, starting in high school, I got way into it. I really learned a lot about it. And I, for a lot of the beginning of my session work, it was mostly just kind of programming for other guys where we would, you know, for instance, uh, David Foster brought me, he had written a couple songs that were on the first Michael Jackson solo album, Off the Wall, and Quincy had called him in to do synthesizers, and in those days, whenever David Foster had to do synthesizers, he would bring me along, you know, not to play so much, but just to tweak the sound. You know, they'd say, get a string sound, get a Moog bass sound, you know, whatever it was they needed, you know, or... Or quite often it would be, what do you think? What do you hear? Do you hear anything? You know, and you uh, you pitch ideas at them and, and go for it. And you mentioned Quincy there, Quincy Jones, of course. So what was he like to work with? Quincy was fantastic to work with. For for me, we got along fantastic in the studio. Um, yeah, Quincy was just, you know, it was always happening all the time. Now, he would erase your part in two seconds after you left it. <laughs> You know, oh, that's nice. That must be in. motivating. Yeah. No. Well, no. And I, I was aware of that because most of the stuff I would do, I was replacing somebody. You know, they would have some other part there, and they just Quincy would just say, "What do you hear on this?" And if I'd get something up, and if he liked it better than what he had, he would uh, use what I did. We were all just kind of part of a team. You know what I mean? Nobody was really kind of keeping score. You know? Yeah. I mean, you had Rod Temperton in there as well, of course, didn't you? Yes, and Rod was always, all the time I was working on Thriller, uh, Rod was always in the studio. He was there constantly. And he seemed to be the nicest man. I was lucky enough to meet him uh, in a hotel uh, in London once, and he turned up in the sort of, uh, sort of tracksuit and, and was the kindest, nicest, most modest man you could imagine. Really sweet. And here's the other thing about Rod, though. He really knew his stuff. He, uh, um, I remember my brother Jeff telling me about Rod. Now, you know, yes, he was very polite and quite the gentleman, but boy, Rod knew what he wanted. You know, there was no doubt about Rod knowing what he wanted. And I remember my brother Jeff commenting that. And sorry, and also a keyboard player because he played in Heatwave. Sure, sure. Um, but he, you know, he just he knew what he wanted. There was no guesswork with Rod. He knew what he wanted and. A lot of times musicians, they love that because a lot of times people expect you, and you know, that's part of the job is to bring some life to their chord sheet. You know what I mean? And uh, um, Rod, though, knew what he wanted and would let you know and could communicate it really well to the musicians. Steve, you mentioned earlier you're doing or have done and are doing a lot of movie soundtracks. So how do you come to work on a movie? How does that all come together? You know, I uh, I haven't been doing too much film work lately because I've been so gone on the road with Toto for so long. Um, but I'll be, I'll definitely be, there'll be more of that in my future. Um, how that happens is uh, uh, various different ways. I, I'm very close with my friend James Newton Howard kind of got me started. Um, started having, you know, I would help him with some cues on some movies and uh, um 
he pitched me one day to a, someone wanted a TV show and they was doing a TV show and James was doing the main title and he pitched to me as the composer. And, um, I had no idea if I could write music, you know, if I could have music done by Thursday, if you know what I'm saying. Um, I had never done that before. I'd never in total, I wasn't, they weren't counting on me for songs. So if I didn't have a bunch of songs ready when we make an album, no one really seemed to care. And uh, I had never really worked on a, such a tight deadline as, Film work is, but I found out that I loved it. So how does it work then? They 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 give you give you what number of weeks and say you've got to deliver this by this time. Is that how it works? Oh yeah, when it's a TV show, it's by the week. You have you go in there and you spot it. You talk with the producers and discuss exactly where the music starts and stops, and then you go home and you work and you have to deliver a full score in a week. Oh my goodness! So so you are you literally working night and day then? You know just to get that done. I mean, do 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 you feel you have a compromise on the creativity because you're up against the clock? You know, uh, sure, sure, there's that. But um, also, like I said, you know, the clock has become my friend. You know, kind of without the clock, I kind of don't get anything done. I don't get anything finished. It's very easy for me to work. It's very easy for me to start writing songs. It's very, it's very easy to putter away in the studio and tweak and all that. But as far as finishing stuff where it's done and you're able to let it go, I, I kind of need a deadline. Okay. Is that also because you're a perfectionist? Do you think you can always do better with more time? Sure, sure. You know, it's the same in the studio. I mean, every album Toto did, they would have to come and literally take the tapes from us. You know, we would want to keep going. We'd want another week. We'd try to squeeze out another month. And, and uh, you know, they would have to pry the tapes out of our hands practically, you know. <laughs> Steve Picaro, keep writing the brilliant songs. It's been an utter pleasure. And when you come to the UK next, come and see us. You're always very welcome to our rain, our wind and our bad weather. And I'll come to LA instead and do a swap with you. (laughs) Sounds great. Steve, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Take care. That's the wonderful Steve Picaro on the line from America. And before that, the equally brilliant Nils Lofgren minus the onstage trampoline. This has been the Private Lives Podcast from East London Radio. Thank you for listening. I'm Paul Robinson. Stay tuned to Podcast Radio for more Private Lives very soon. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. <laughs>